Hello and welcome to Here Now, a Whitechapel Gallery podcast that delves into the stories behind the exhibitions on view at the gallery, here in the heart of East London. Each episode invites a curator to be in conversation with artists, collaborators and other thinkers about the works and themes explored in the displays, giving you special access to the ideas that shape the artworks. My name is Cathy O'Sullivan. I am part of the group of 10 curators gathered as part of Whitechapel Gallery and London South Bank University's master's course in curating art and public programmes. As students on this course, we have come together to curate our exhibition, Tracing Absence. Tracing Absence highlights the presence of absence in selected works from the collection of the Christian Surveyors Art Foundation. We ask whether the two can exist in harmony with or in contrast to one another. The featured artists are Sophie Kahl, Nan Golden, Andreas Gursky, Ola Kolomainen, Ken Matsubara, Mikkel McAllenden, Zanelli Maholi, Wolfgang Tillmans, James White, and Francesca Woodman. From beyond the collection, sound works by Yiska and Joseph Sergi further explore absence through grief and the passing of time. Curator Ada Egg Koskiloma will be speaking with photographer and award-winning host of Shade podcast, Lou Mensa, as well as artist and writer Sunil Shah to get their perspective on the meaning of absence in contemporary art. Tracing Absence is open to all and free to view in galleries 5 and 6 until 2nd of January 2023. Lou Mensa is a London-based writer, photographer and the founder of Shade Podcast, a platform which hosts conversations with creative and radical thinkers on the politics of race and representation within the arts. Lou began her creative career as a photographer, gaining awards for her work from Nick Knight and Alexander McQueen. But the commercial photography world she found herself in was very far away from having any conversations around representation in front and behind the camera lens. As a self-taught black female photographer, she would seek the stories and guidance of people that share similar alienating experiences. In 2019, she started her podcast Shade to be a platform giving a voice to those stories, inviting a creative practitioner for each episode whose work looks at race, identity and inclusion. Lou, from structural change through creative practice to decolonizing school curriculums, your podcast looks into various ways of discussing representation, especially in the art world. You speak of gaping holes of representation you met during your career, how does the notion of absence resonate with these gaps and the conversations you have as a podcast host and photographer? Well, that's a really interesting question and it's made me think about like the journey I've taken. You know, I started as a photographer in the early 90s, so that's um, almost a quarter of a century ago. So things have definitely changed for everybody since then. But during my early career as a photographer, my experience was that there are narratives put upon me and put upon my work as a as a photographer, but also as a, as a person, because I was quite an anomaly within the arts world, within my community that I was in, in London in the 90s and, and within photography. And, and so I think these narratives were put upon me because I was a minority. So I suppose that I was a confusing presence um, within what was at the time, you know, a majority white and male creative industry, you know, at the time. 
Um, and there, were, there, there was a real absence in, in role models for me. Um, and we have to remember that at that time, this was before the internet. So in terms of access to um, having work that I could connect with that could inspire me, there wasn't a lot of access into um, other worlds that I was craving at the time. So I had to kind of search out inspiration in bookshops and galleries and, that you know, there wasn't a lot available. Uh, and white men dominated the photography landscape commercially at the time. You know, Terry Richardson, Jürgen Teller, those were the kind of names that were kind of flooding the landscape. So that was one kind of gap that, that kind of happened in the representation that because I was kind of an anomaly that these narratives um, about what I represented were put upon me. And also there was an obvious gap that was being filled by my presence as a black woman photographer. But there was something else which I think is more important that was going on at the time. And there was a there was kind of a glaring absence in what wasn't said around me or about my work, um, about my presence and about the work that I was creating. I think that perhaps because people didn't understand it, they didn't know how to acknowledge it or talk about it. So therefore, I was put in certain categories about what my work was about, you know. Um, and it's very confusing to people to hear this at the time, but, it, you know, this was only the 90s you know this wasn't like the 1940s but because I was a a, a woman photographer and I um, shot a lot of um, you know unclothed bodies at the time unclothed women nakedness you know the narratives around me were you know that I was a, a lesbian photographer and you know I was an erotic photographer and all of these things which of course mm. all of those things are fine and amazing but that's not what I was doing so these narratives were put upon me and people sort of didn't understand my presence but also my blackness so that was never discussed it was never explored it was never discussed with any sort of commercial directors or art directors that I was working with it was just an idea or you know my cultural presence was a presence that they didn't understand and I was doing work that other black women photographers at the time perhaps weren't doing I wasn't photographing my community so it wasn't easily recognizable what I was doing so these narratives were put put upon my work and in terms of a commercial career you know my presence sort of created this kind of vortex as well this gaping hole that you mentioned you know that absence around me people didn't know how to, to, to yeah. place me I wasn't completely conscious of this at the time but um you know it's when you process you kind of understand what's happening but I just think it's also really interesting to think about the notion of absence and, and representation and, and, and what it means. And to me, you know, I, I think about themes of loss and disappearance and erasure and these are the reoccur you know, and the role that those absences play in narratives about representation. And so, you know, when, when I think about that, I think about, you know... Um, how, for example, you know, post the Black Lives Matter uprisings of 2020, um, you know, the art galleries put out lots of statements for support for uh, black creatives and how two years on, you know, those statements have really not held up and, and why have those statements not held up and why have things not changed? And still it's again because I think a lot of the narratives and the statements that the galleries and arts institutions were putting out were coming from a place of misunderstanding, you know, of um, trying to reach out and try to create a conversation but really not understanding the group or the community or the conversation um, that they they should be having and that 
creates like a, a vortex of mistrust or an absence of trust within the community that they're actually trying to support. And that's what happened for me as a black woman photographer in the 90s as well. You know, the conversations just weren't honest and they weren't sort of based in trust and understanding and perhaps a real need for the people who had the ability and the power to create change and to become more inclusive and to represent marginalised communities more. I think really, you know, the honesty and um, the sincerity um, wasn't really there. That's this kind of background and, and where I came from. And, and so moving on to working as a podcaster and a communicator within the arts, um, you know, a verbal communicator, not just a visual one. I'm, it's really important to me that I focus on the simplification of language and the communication of ideas. And I think that is what really creates an inclusive space. So I've really learned from my experience of being a photographer. And when we talk about accessibility and inclusion, you know, quite often we talk about practical things like lowering admission fees to galleries or making free free spaces for people to come into or perhaps bringing in um, collectives from minority groups to create short exhibitions. You know, those are practical things and on some levels yeah. those work and on other levels they don't. But what we often don't think about is how we kind of hyper-intellectualise narratives and conversations around art, which I think is a strategy of exclusion as well. That's not inclusive. And I just think that, you know, art and photography and just visual expression is such a pure form of expression but we still look to academics and we use complicated language which closes doors for accessibility rather than opening them so the conversations that I have in shade are not just about talking to black artists or, or black creatives it's about creating the language and having conversations on race and you know within the arts that are complicated but you know we all have a collective understanding of what needs to be addressed, but we're using language and we're using themes and we're using medium of sound as, as, as well as voice to really create an inclusivity in these conversations. Um, and I, I just think that's really, really important. And I think there's a great loss in connection when an artist is misunderstood or when a person engaging with art is not able to access what an artist is, is trying to communicate um, beyond their visual artwork itself so I really try to cut through all the unnecessary language filters as well as giving a space for artists to express their own narratives without censorship and without the narratives being placed upon them and I think that's a really meaningful way to create inclusivity for the people involved but also for the audience who are listening. You're talking about collectivity and sharing experiences and that reminds me of you previously mentioning a desire to collaborate more with others. Us 10 students experienced this during the process of creating this show. So could you expand more on how collaboration might lead to new ways of thinking and more inclusive practices within the arts? Well, collaborations sort of creates a gateway into new worlds when we're working with new people, right? So, you know, it's like, it's it's the, the collaborative process is an, is an open process. It's like a dance between the people involved. There's an exchange of energy, there's a symbiosis. And we spend so much time with our collaborators that we, what we're essentially doing is laying the groundwork for building a relationship with them as we're going through the process of creating 
the project that we're working on or, or the work that we're that we're creating together. And and I think it's just such an important part of the process of personal growth, but professional growth as well, because, you know, through collaboration, we build ideas, or we create something new and we ultimately learn about ourselves just as we do in any relationship. And I think collaborations are really interesting because, you know, my collaborative processes that, that that I've been involved with with other people, you know, the ideas kind of, you know, override the egos involved. It's like the personality and and, and the egos of, of the people involved kind of move to the background and, and, and the mm. ideas kind of progress and move to the foreground. And I think that's a really beautiful experience to be involved in and I think collaborations are really like spiritually transcendent spaces as well you know they're more than just about the work they're about growth development and and relationships and but more practically collaborations can also reduce cultural social and artistic barriers between individuals and groups as well so by Collaborating, we can enter new spaces and engage with ideas and people that perhaps we may have not had access to previously, you know. And of course, this process allows for new insights and ways of thinking and and, and growth. And so that dance moves on and on and and then it expands and moves on towards new audiences and, 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 and it creates fresh responses. I just think it's a really important process and I've been working on a collaboration at the moment for the new season um, of Shade and it's just a really beautiful example of how this these collaborations and this processes can kind of affect us as individuals um, but the work as well so um, I've been in a collaboration with a sound designer called Axel Cacoutier um, and he's current mm-hmm. he's currently the creative director of um, audio at The Guardian but he's an amazing amazing sound designer and we've been working on a series of soundscapes together for the past year and the intention with that was that that we create a work that acts as a kind of prayer or invocation which which kind of invokes healing for for our audience and we realized that the need to create these sounds but was because we had the need within ourselves you know we had a need and desire for for healing within the work that we were doing and I think that's after you know the past couple of years that we've all been through it's been kind of traumatic it's been difficult and so we got together um, to create this work really for the audience but the process of that has really helped us individually as well and I think that's really important and so I've experienced a personal growth through that relationship that I hadn't anticipated. You know, I thought it was just about the work. But also what's really interesting about collaborative work is that you can move and um, enter new spaces within industries that perhaps you haven't worked within before or new spaces or with new groups. Um, So for example, you know, Axel and I work in very different industry spaces. Yes, we both work in in audio, but he definitely works in in, um, like a commercial sound creation space. um, And I work just firmly within the visual arts. And so we, our day-to-day life is very different. But what's happened during the past year that we've been working together is that you know I've entered his world and his space of sound creation and sound is a really visceral you know and human medium and so there has to be a lot of trust and honesty and and kind of boundaries um, within that relationship and also an openness to learn new things about their world because unless I understand 
his world and his practice, you know, it's very difficult to work together. And he's been doing the same, you know, with my world and and the art world and learning new things about that. And so, you know, that creates a personal growth that not only benefits us individually, but also um, our practice. And so through that, you know, Axel's decided, you know, that he really wants to to work more within the visual arts, which is, you know, in part new territory for him. And so we both bring these perspectives and I think that's really a beautiful thing that comes from collaboration. It's really beautiful how you refer to it as a dance or a movement that sort of expands into a new practice, um, into a collaboration. We are actually including two sound artists in our show that are featured next to the Christian Sveas works. And we were just wondering how, how do you think that sound can access new spaces in maybe being a, an absence of a physical presence? Well, I've been definitely aware like of when I've been engaged with the visual arts in gallery spaces, in traditional spaces, that sometimes for me there may have been something that was missing. And again, when we talk about this hyper-intellect, this processing that has to go on when you're in like um, an art space, you know, there's mm-hmm. there's people around, there's lots of words and visual statements written, there's like leaflets and written material and text that you're given. It's quite a lot of processing that needs to happen. That's the first thing. And I think that that's, that's quite a lot to process when um, that you're in a gallery. And sometimes it's quite difficult just to really connect with it and disengage from the surrounding literal noise but also atmospheric noise and environmental noise you know light and you know people moving around and so I think sound is a really important and useful like medium in order to bring us back you know it's um it's a sense you know it's one of our senses and it's very grounding you know um you know it's a real cerebral kind of like um level of engagement that we have with sound and i think you know having sound to accompany visual artworks really helps like the connection like the human connection between the work and the person engaging mm-hmm. with it but also what it does it allows us to like really connect with with the person who's created that sound piece on another level and through a different medium. So through sound, you know, like through speech and through touch and and all of these different senses, we can access different parts of other people, what they're telling us, what their emotions are, what they're feeling, but also, you know, what we're feeling. And I think sound um, is really useful for that. I just think it's really grounding. And also, um, you know, um, within my family and with some of the artists that I've worked with in the past, you know, they might have um, learning difficulties or they, um, you know, Mm -hmm. there might be some challenges that they have of being able to access um, art spaces in a traditional way. You know, just like I say, reading text or just constantly processing visual media sometimes is quite difficult. But, you know, quite often if we just put some, headphones on or we just allow ourselves to be immersed in sound we can really then get back to the the basics of the foundations you know of our humanity like really engage with that sense and relax and it can help us to really disassociate from everything else that might be going on I just think it's such a powerful medium that can be used, like utilised more within gallery spaces and within the art world and just also through the podcast medium as well. You know, we, we, we talk a lot 
But sometimes, you know, talking can't always tell the full story. And I think having sound to help us Mm. tell a story is a really useful and integral tool for communicating. Thank you for sharing those very interesting thoughts. Um, It was such a wonderful contribution. Thank you, Lou. Sunil Shah is an artist and curator based in Oxford. He is interested in the politics of photographic representation and conceptual post-documentary practices with relation to history, memory and identity. Sunil, in your work, both as a curator and as an artist, you explore the visual document, the photograph and archives as temporal artifacts, with an interest in studying their role in relation to post-colonial theory, political science and black studies. In your photographic project titled 1969, you gather a fragmentary visual archive that speaks of diasporic family rituals and the memorialization of objects. About this work you wrote, what is always missing in these objects of the past are blind spots and hidden features that represent details of certain sociopolitical conditions and absent personhood. Could you say more about the medium of photography and its relation to absence and presence? Where I think would be a really useful starting point when we're talking about the medium of photography is the fact that it's, you know, for the last 150, 175 years, it's become a kind of recording tool, uh, a way of documenting our lives, events, people. And it's it does that through it, its kind of like ontological construction as a, as a recording device, as something which creates an imprint of light this you know we refer to as the index so it's it's something which kind of records through light or now through a digital sensor what's presented in front of it and that then becomes kind of imprinted onto this either a print or now a file a digital file and photography has this kind of strange relationship to absence and presence in the sense that it's able to record what's in front of it but as soon as that is done then that moment is gone and then straight away this idea of absence is is incorporated because the moment is lost straight away and that that lost moment then becomes kind of placed within this kind of print or file as a kind of reference to the photographic event. And because of that, often photography is kind of aligned to this idea of, of, of death as well, is that not only is that moment lost, but as, and, I, and I'm not sure whether you're aware of Roland Barthes' writing on, on photography, where in Camera Lucida he he speaks about, you know, the kind of capture of his, or finding the essence of his mother who's died. He, he kind of comes to the conclusion that this, this, this photography is, is about death. You know, it's about the loss of this, this event and this moment or a person who will forever be kind of captured in this frame, but then is lost forever. And he, you, regardless of how much you try, you you cannot kind of recover this kind of moment or or this event. And in my work, I, you know, just bringing it up to what I'm interested in in terms of photography, is the fact that this this particular moment 
it can, because of the the nature of the medium, can be sort of leveraged around how it relates to either fact or truth or knowledge. So if we imagine that photography refers to this kind of moment, it has this kind of reference to this kind of individual particular time and space. But yet, if, we, if we're unable to kind of have a direct relationship to that, that moment, either because we weren't there or that we, in some ways, we are kind of abstracted from it, then there's a potential in the medium through its kind of slippery nature, through the way in which it can move in and out of different meanings, different signifiers, which allow other meanings to emerge from it. And when, I mean, you reference my, my work on 1969 and my other photographic work, often I use photographic archives, and that work becomes a kind of critique of the archive, but all, at the same time it also becomes a way in which new meanings can emerge out of, of images. Instead of something being related to the provenance of the image, the meaning is kind of dispersed and it can potentially be accessed in various places. And the reason I do that is because the way in which history is kind of told is that we're often kind of led to believe or led to kind of become aware of certain narratives. Um, and when I was looking at my family's past and our kind of colonial history in Africa, I realised that there were a handful of narratives that were kind of propagated continually. And I realised that there was so much that was lost. So I became interested in thinking about photography as a tool by which we could try and recover something that was lost and something that was kind of no longer present, you know, whether that's in, in our kind of conscious, uh, collective consciousness, or whether that's through kind of social and political narratives that are kind of presented by the media. I can give you some examples. And one of them was the fact that within the history of Ugandan Asians, for instance, was that there was this story that you know, we came to the UK as refugees and then we had no money and then we all became successful. And that is a... Although there's, some tr there's definitely some truth to that narrative, not everybody became successful, but yet that is the, the story that Ugandan Asians like to tell themselves about that past. But then there's so much of that history that then becomes kind of um, uninteresting or becomes lost through that, you know, the, the stories that are otherwise and the experiences of people that were particularly different. At the same time, there's, there's a kind of narrative that prevails around Idi Amin, who was the dictator that threw all the Asians out of Uganda. And that is this kind of narrative of him being a tyrant. And what that does, it, it kind of shifts attention from the kind of decolonization of African states and the kind of uh, pursuit of nation building and individual freedom outside of colonialism and pushes it into this kind of narrative of third world tyrants you know and again you know it, if you if you see what happens there there's a shifting of a conversation the conversation turns towards you know the kind of evil dictator as opposed to a conversation on well why 
you know, African nation states needed to find some form of sort of liberation and and identity outside of the kind of colonialism that they experienced, you know, a hundred or so years. So you see, you know, I feel like these, the way in which photography can perhaps operate in this is that it can become a way in which to sort of recover certain narratives through its kind of slippery nature. And I think that's kind of what I'm interested in. Uh, And I did mention about the archive too, is that the archive is this kind of institutional context and framework which attaches meaning to photographs. And in my practice, I'm trying to undo that that institutional attachment, you know, and in some respects, quite recently, photography has been aligned to a kind of very colonial gaze, you know, the colonial gaze. Mark Seeley writes a little bit about that. And um, it's, it's about trying to kind of find or recover a, a kind of a space which provides a way of, of kind of resisting those kind of hegemonic structures, you know, whether they're sort of archives or whether they're institutions or whether they're the media or the way the state kind of propagates its kind of stories and narratives about the world. I feel like these you know, this kind of undoing of um, these narratives is, is kind of pretty important and quite critical because otherwise we do find ourselves in the possibility that we lose certain stories over the period of history. I guess also just on expanding practice of mapping or tracing absences and I think it is really important what you mentioned about that institutionalization of archives and how archives could be accessed in a more personal way and in a personal research. Yeah, I mean, and I think that that's, um, you know, one of, one of the purposes of being in the context of, you know, artistic practice is that it, it creates these kind of spaces in which that is made possible. I think, you know, one of the things about photography is that it, you know, up until quite recently, um, it has been very much attached to this kind of, idea of documentary truth and fact and um you know the way in which photos are kind of occupy this kind of representational mode a lot of the images that was you know in the in the you know before the millennium and most of the images that were circulating in the news were made by western photojournalists for instance so there's a certain kind of narrative that kind of comes out of them a story the way in which photographs are taken the way in which anyone outside of kind of Western Eurocentrism is kind of represented is from the perspective of the European. Even photographers who operate within the Global South, for instance, they're using the same language. So they're making images through this kind of colonial Eurocentric gaze of the world. What we're seeing now is through kind of like networks of of image sharing and social media, for instance, is that image production or the kind of economy of image production is much more broadened because these, you know, the tools of Instagram and Facebook and these kind of things allow images to be constructed from anywhere. And so, you know, the whole kind of rise of citizen journalism, for instance, the way in which people can construct their own images and archives on Instagram, for instance, the new visibilities are kind of starting to emerge 
possibly post, you know, uh, post 2000 and into the millennium. Um, and that, you know, largely things like Instagram are, you know, responsible for that, you know, whether we like them or not. And I think that's that's quite a big paradigm shift if you think about the flow of images. Yeah. Um, you know, no longer are people sort of taking images and then print, you know, like they're not no longer prints that are then put into suitcases and, you know, photo albums at home. Most people's images now exist online and, you know, on hard disks. And, you know, I would argue even the hard disk is becoming a bit more redundant now because the platform in which you share your images becomes the repository of those images. Thank you for sharing those insights into your practice. In Tracing Absence, there are two sound works exhibited by Jessica Bici, Elias Giska and Joseph Sergi. And these works were selected outside of the Christian Sveas collection and stand in direct contrast to the visual works in the display. In what ways might sound as a medium tracing an echo or reflection share similarities to photography in the way it redefines space and highlights what is not visible? When I saw this question, I thought it was really interesting because, first of all, it's like you often think, well, you know, what are, you know, what are the similarities between the different kind of media that we, we kind of show in exhibitions, for instance? Photography has its history. We have a certain kind of um, visual literacy when it comes to looking at photographs. We kind of identify them through visual tropes that we've become used to recognising. For instance, the portrait or the landscape or the documentary image, the reportage image, these kind of things, or the archival image. We, in some ways, as soon as we see an image like that, we it already places us into a certain like reference point or into how we might read this image coupled with the fact that normally when we see visual material in an exhibition we're often given the context in that exhibition so we're given the title of the exhibition there may be a text most usually there is a text that is a you know contextual introductory text for the exhibition which gives us a certain amount of information about what we're likely to be looking at and then when we see images or maybe see paintings or maybe we see other visual material we search for kind of meaning through you know maybe there's an artist statement or some other material there and text really largely informs how in how in which we start reading these images obviously if there's sound present in the exhibition and sound pieces I'm not so sure if they operate so much in the same way. And the reason I say that is because, first of all, obviously the context of the exhibition and the text of the exhibition will kind of inform the way we feel about the exhibition and what, it's to, what we imagine it to be telling us. But yet sound op kind of operates in a kind of separate register in a way because sat with sound, not only does the space of the exhibition transform, and you mentioned there, the kind of redefining of the space. Often when you see an image and there's sound with that image, then sometimes the sound starts informing your imagination of what that image means. And it, it may, you know, if, if the sound that you're hearing is a kind of industrial sound, it may kind of give you a different feeling than if the sound was a much more kind of softer sort of 
sensitive kind of sound, you know, and your reading of the image will change. And in the same way, your experience of the exhibition will change based on the sound. And sometimes sound in an exhibition is is kind of bled from various places. So there may be different sound pieces that come together. And sometimes you may have a sound piece that then finds itself being heard while you're accessing lots of different artworks. And that's quite an interesting thing because sometimes you think, well, the sound might be sort of dictating my pace through the exhibition. Maybe the sound changes your sort of mood, you know, that you you might have a, a certain kind of feeling as you're, you know, influenced by this sound. I went to a Luma exhibition in, in Arles recently and I saw the work of Arthur Jaffa. And there was a... At the end of the exhibition, there was a kind of... A, one of his film pieces, which had this chiming, repetitive sound. But they made sure that that sound could be heard outside of that the space of where that film was being shown. It was, be, it was heard throughout the whole space. And it was quite a huge space. And... Um, I realised that what that sound was doing, it was not only setting the ominous tone of the nature of the content that you accessed throughout the exhibition, but also it was giving you a pace, you know, it was giving you the rhythm in which to sort of access the work. And so I think that when it comes to sound, there's a lot more going on. There's much more of a complicated relationship with objects that you may be seeing in the exhibition, content that you may be looking at. And in some respects, I sometimes think of artworks as being kind of portals into, into a, you know, small worlds. So when you look at an artwork or you look at a photograph, for instance, a photograph is kind of usually presented in a frame. And within that frame, there's this kind of world that exists within the, the corners of that frame. And I feel like that you kind of become immersed in what's going on in that in that world. It's kind of framed and contextualised by the limits of that frame. But I think that what sound does is that it's like this fourth dimension. It, it allows you to exist inside and outside of that frame. So you will have a reading of what's happening in that image. But when you turn away from that image and you start walking to the next artwork or picture or anything like that you still have that sound with you I think sound has a very kind of unique place within exhibitions and also it does different things to us depending on what our relationship to sound is I feel like you know sound kind of can exist in various ways so the sound a sound work may have ambient sound there'll be the ambient sound of the of the place where you are the sound that you're listening to may be noise or it might be constructed sound or a score or music or voice. And all of these things, in the same way, because you, you mentioned about the similarities, in the same way the way in which we register information through sight, we also register and store information in our brains for sound as well. And each time we see something or if each time we listen to something, it will activate certain kind of neural pathways which evoke certain feelings in us and so you know in in this one similarity would be that you know sound is just if not more subjective as as 
sight is in the way in which we might engage with an artwork or a picture or a sound piece in the way how it makes us feel and you know we may you know find ourselves being taken back into time you know and you know when just bringing us back to this question of absence and presence that even fleetingly it might take us back to a, a moment of time or a, a place where we've been or we start remembering something and that could be something really unique to each of us it's a beautiful way of seeing it as breaking up lines of the frame and the way you refer to the works as being portals and in both ways sound being a different portal to enter or access an artwork and I think it also resonates with what you earlier said about photography being a medium that is fleeting or holding on to this moment that after the picture is taken sort of aligns with a past event and I guess that is very similar to sound recordings so yeah those insights were really great thank you so much we were looking at your exhibition Absence of Presence, which was hosted at the Rack Factory in Brick Lane in June 2011. And we were just wondering if you wanted to say a few words about maybe the similarities of our exhibition titles. Yes, um, so that's well remembered. Um, I did an exhibition, or I was part of a, a group of people that pulled an exhibition together in 2011 at the Rag Factory. And it was during our undergraduate photography degree at University of Westminster. The reason we picked the, the title Absence of Presence was partly to do with what I was talking about earlier around how photography relates to both an absence and a presence. And because it was a group show, we were trying to find something that would kind of be common to each of our practices. There was seven of us in the, in the show and each person made very different work. Everybody's work was completely, like, unrelated. And we were trying to find a kind of common theme that might be a way in which to kind of pull our works together. And one of the things that I think is a, a, a big talking point in, in photographic kind of theory is this idea of, of, of absence and presence, you know, and how photography kind of can be both and how it kind of evokes this kind of idea of the past, but at the same time, it's a kind of re-evaluation of the present when you're putting an exhibition on, and if, whether you're looking at an archive of images or whether you're representing images that you've taken quite recently, there's this kind of moment of the present in which you're placing all these images in, in the context of a place and, and you're staging an exhibition. And I think that was the kind of, you know, the kind of root of what we were doing there. It was really good to talk to you and Lou about it because both of you uniquely brought thoughts together that we all in our research upcome, for the upcoming exhibition have experienced and they were all sort of tying in elements of a void or a gap that has to be filled or wants to be filled, promises of possibilities and regenerative futures, as well as talking about the passing of time and grief and loss. So all of this has been kind of coming together. We're a group of 10 students, so it was that type of endeavor of curating all together. And it has been a long research process. Um, 
alongside looking at the Christian Sveas Art Foundation and selecting words from that collection, which were predominantly photography, that we could select. Also, all these thoughts around the medium of photography and including sound works was something that we wanted to do from the very beginning. I guess motivated by the fact that it's something that is non-physical, that sort of challenges the, the visual artifact. And so we've been working together with these two sound artists that were kind enough to share their work with us. A huge thank you to Sunil and Lou for talking to us and sharing your thoughts. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of Here Now, a Whitechapel Gallery podcast that is available on the podcast platform of your choice. If you've enjoyed this episode, then why not subscribe to Here Now and give a thumbs up. And don't forget to visit our exhibition, Tracing Absence, at Whitechapel Gallery, open and free to the public until 2nd of January 2023. To listen online to the soundworks discussed in this podcast and read the publication accompanying our exhibition, please follow the link in the description. Thanks for listening.